Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, RCD contributor John Waters and I speak with the author of one of the most popular articles on Real Clear Defense this year. Donald Stoker, historian and professor of strategy and policy for the U.S. Naval War College, a respected scholar of Carl von Clausewitz, and most recently the author of Why America Loses Wars, Limited War and U.S. Strategy from the Korean War to the Present. And now, John Waters. Don Stoker, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you. Now, Don, about a month or so ago, we collaborated on a piece called Why America Loses Wars, which shares a title with a book you wrote a couple of years ago. Uh, surprising maybe to both of us, it became the most read article of 2022. It's an article and an interview, to be clear. But it really uh, tripped a switch with the audience. They found it fascinating. Tell us, why did you write the book, Why America Loses Wars? Well, I, I got interested in the, the subject um, with teaching, I worked for the Naval War College for 18 years at the uh, Naval War College Department in Monterey, uh, California. And I was teaching a class called uh, Strategy and War and Strategy and Policy. It changed the title from time to time. But we were um, teaching uh, Korea, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, and some other wars, but particularly in those three. And we were using some literature on, you know, there was it's called roughly the limited war literature. And I was just unhappy uh, with it, very unhappy with it. I didn't think it was particularly good or particularly logical or particularly informed historically <laughs> as well, because uh, a lot of it was just wrong. Uh, and so I was had just finished a, a biography of Clausewitz. And so I, I started kind of digging in uh, to the literature on it and just found it to be just intellectually bankrupt on so many levels that it took an entire <laughs> book to address just a few tiny bit of the problems with the logic and the factual errors and in it. So, and it uh, led me down some various rabbit holes looking at, okay, we've published since the 1950s, all this stuff on so-called limited war. Uh, what did these guys actually say? What was informing their views? What has been the effect on, American strategy and American foreign policy and American foreign relations and the way we teach at uh, graduate schools and the way we teach in strategic studies programs. And um, has it had any effect on how we actually uh, fight wars or how we make decisions about wars? And so, I mean, it just it opened up a whole just gigantic pot or series of pots of really complex and really difficult questions. And so it was, you know, it was an education for me because first I just spent an enormous amount of time reading the literature because it's staggering. The, uh, my, my bibliography was 100 pages, uh, a typescript for it because I tried to read everything I could find. Uh, most of it's in English. A lot of it's in, some of it's in French. There's some of it in German, but the French and German stuff just it just basically copies the bad ideas from the American writers. So it's not, a, it's even of less value. So it takes a bad idea and makes it even thinner, you know, which gets me in trouble that you can leave in when you edit it. But uh, so, and so just, I had just written a biography of Clausewitz and I'd spent four or five years reading everything I could find that, that about Clausewitz and what he had written. And one of the things about doing that is it taught me to think a lot more logically than I did before. And so just kind of applied 
okay, is are, are, are what these things, these people are saying logical? Well, very often no, because they don't understand the difference between the political aim that you're trying to achieve and the means, the physical means, the material means that you use to get it. And they don't understand often the ways, the strategy that you would then use to get that. And they don't understand that these things are different. And they don't understand that because they're different, you have to think about them in different ways. And then they don't understand also the interrelationship with this. And they don't understand in this literature why the political aim matters so much, because this is what you're trying to achieve. And this then drives what you do. And also a lot of it, a lot of the literature, the so-called quote unquote limited war literature, end up with some very just odd, odd, odd things in it. And it has some very odd effects because I know I'm getting to a long way around this, but one of the startling things that I saw in it was that I started to see beginning in the 1950s, uh, and this is related to the Korean War and fears of use of atomic weapons, the, this idea that, well, maybe you shouldn't try to win the wars that you're in. And so this leads to a lot of thinking uh, on that. Well, really, we shouldn't win the wars we, uh, that we're involved in. Uh, we need to really constrain the amount of means that we're using because we might get too close to winning. Uh, and this would be bad because this could frighten the other side into doing crazy things. Uh, and, and so just a very odd thing for me to see that and then see how that filters down since the 1950s to where you see articles uh, written in the 2000 teens uh, about Afghanistan, uh, sometimes one, one in particular by a State Department person and one by uh, several by flag officers, uh, one particularly an army, a Canadian army general, for instance, and some others are all in my bibliography, where you start seeing, well, no, uh, winning is not the point of it. Winning, meaning achieving your political aim, is not why you fight the war. This is bad. And we have two, uh, have a two in one article, we have a two victory centric uh, uh, idea about war. And so this, to me, struck me as a bit nuts uh, in a lot of different ways. One, because we spent the last two decades sending people uh, to uh, to fight our wars. Well, if you're not trying to win the war, then will it ever end? The other side's trying to win. That's the other part of the craziness, because the other side, whether it's the Russians, the Afghans, the Iraqis, whatever, they're not thinking that way and they're not writing that way. Uh, when they go to war, the point is to get what they want. The point is to not dabble around in it for 20 years and get people killed uh, who are sometimes my or get them killed and wounded who are sometimes my friends and my relatives on occasion uh, now at this point children of uh, of my friends uh, friends that I have for decades they have uh, or my cousin's son who serves overseas in the Navy I mean this the number of people I know that are uh, having worked for the military for so long the number of people I know who it's friends and relatives that are involved in this. So to me, I took it very seriously, very angry a lot of the time when I was writing, writing the book, because I would think about, gosh, you're sending, you know, I had a student one time who uh, was, we had a lot of Army Special Forces officers for a long time in our curriculum. And I remember one time, uh, one of the officers I had, he was a great guy, I won't give you his name, but I love him. He's just so fun to talk to. But I always asked the students where they had served. And one of them said, uh, I said, well, how many, okay, if you've served in Afghanistan, yes, sir, I have. How many times? He said, I don't know, sir, nine or 10. I'm not really sure. And he was, he, okay, now, if you <laughs> guys, 
off the top of their head, they have been so many deployments that they don't really know. They just don't really know. Oh, I'm not really sure. I mean, think about that. This shows we perhaps have a problem, you know? (laughs) Right. And some of the guys that I work with now, one of my students now has, he has six year long, at least year long deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then another guy that I work with, he has 70 months in Iraq, 70 months. So, so I mean, there are a lot of these men and women have done a lot. Maybe we should figure out, you know, a better way of doing things. I know that's a long way to, to get to the answer. And I don't really know that I even answered, answered the question, but I mean, it raised so many issues and what I was seeing just intellectually. And then what I was you know, seeing, you know, the same guy I mentioned, uh, a friend of his got killed in Afghanistan during class. Uh, one day he got word of it. It was a guy he had known for like 15 or 20 years because they'd served together when they were enlisted. And now he was an officer. And so he just got up and walked out of class one day, which is perfectly understandable. And then I went and found some of the other guys that were his colleagues. And I said, hey, go look for this guy. And one of them came back to me later. He says, now you get a little taste of what it's like. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, it's, just, it's a very, very little I don't understand it, but, you know, so I don't know. So this kind of feeds into uh, some people think the book's a little angry. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Well, it is at times. Yeah, (laughs) it it takes it takes a touch of rage to fuel a good writing, Don. And I think you've done that in this book. And the point you just made that fighting the war becomes an end in itself, not victory, is what the audience really seized upon. And the comments poured in both on this piece that we collaborated on from November 19th of this year, Why America Loses Wars, uh, and to hitting us up individually at the website about whether there is a disjuncture between political leaders and senior, senior military officers and those who serve. Because whatever the case at the political level, the troops join because they want to succeed they want to succeed as individuals in becoming something more or better than what they were. I think that's a motivating reason to join the service, but also to win on the battlefield, to win in combat. And that just wasn't perhaps the case. Don, you're a Clausewitz scholar. Tell us, did he did he say that we can measure society's strength by whether we achieve victory on the battlefield? Was that one of his points? Well, I don't know that he specifically phrased it as the society's strength. But uh, to him, it was certainly very, very critical. I mean, it's certainly an indicator of the society's ability uh, and capability. So maybe that is one way to think about it. But he also would splice it and not just say just the battlefield. I mean, he was a man who understood that very, very viscerally because he had led troops in combat. He was wounded in combat. Uh, He fought in the bloodiest battle uh, in, the, in the bloodiest one-day battle in the 19th century at the Battle of Bordino. He was wounded. and I mean, he, he understood very, very viscerally. Friends were killed and his mentor was killed. You know, but it's not just the victory in battle. It's victory in the war itself. Uh, and he would define that as, as achieving your aim. Um, and these are two parts of the same puzzle here. I mean, usually you have to win in battle to win the war. Not always the case. I mean, you can you know, often you know, lose tactically and then secure things strategically, but it's very unlikely that it's going to come out that way, but it is possible. Uh, so, uh, but the, the point you raised that uh, the response by some of the readers and you talked about the, uh, uh, it was it's interesting because uh, 
I got an email yesterday about the article, which is from a, a friend of mine who is a, a Vietnam veteran. And one of the people that commented on it, if I understood his email correctly, was one of his friends that had been in huh. Vietnam. At 1973 the same time. to 1975, there was a commenter. Yeah. 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 And so uh, this this man, I know he's just retired, but he was a, a civil affairs officer uh, in Vietnam. And he, he talked about the comments that the, the man had made about uh, no one ever talked to them about why they were there uh, and the bigger issues uh, as to why we were there. And, you know, that that was really interesting because I've heard that and read that other places. And you have that as it's a really bad part uh, of, let me, of let me jump in right right yeah. for a second to, to to raise this this reader's comment don since you just referenced it so specifically not even from him but from someone else from a friend yeah from a friend with whom it registered <laughs> yeah. he wrote during yeah. my time in vietnam i don't recall anybody talking about these kind of subjects whether we were winning at the war or what our objective was how does that what does that make you think yeah i mean because it it filled it it's interesting because you know Harry Summers famously wrote this book called On Strategy, and we mentioned it in the in the article. And it's one of the first real efforts to get a do some analysis on Vietnam. And there's a lot of the book I don't agree with, and a lot of it is wrong because we know stuff now. But I mean, it's a fascinating book to read, uh, particularly because some of the things in it are wrong. Where one of the points he tries to make is, look, there's no political aim here uh, in Vietnam. That's mistaken. I mean, and. Now, he says that there is no political aim uh, because he interviewed all of these all of these general officers who after the war who could not tell him the political aim. OK, but we know from the documents and I've read the documents that they're very clearly that the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration and then the Ken- Nixon administration uses the same documents. They very clearly spelled out the political aim in their documents. They want a non-communist, a, a non-communist, independent non-communist. South Vietnam. Uh, so that's a very clear uh, political aim. But this raises then the question, why don't the generals know what this is? You know, so and this is huge because the generals don't know. There's certainly the, um, the, 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 the E4, in, uh, which that man mentions, uh, sitting in a, in, a, in a very nasty place in South Vietnam. He's probably not going to know why he's there, especially since in this case, I think the, the gentleman was conscripted as well. He was a draftee as well. So that had not been explained to him. And so you have this staggering disconnect between what the political leaders want and what they say they're there to achieve and the general officers who are actually on the ground supposed to be achieving it. Now, it's obvious that Westmoreland knew. I mean, I know from his writings and things that's been written about him, he understood very well. And some of the other flag officers understood very, very well what they were there to do. But it's interesting that there are all these other officers that don't. Um, now, this is you can get these disconnects in administrations. It's not unusual at all. You get this in the Bush administration where you have very much a disconnect in Iraq between what Rumsfeld thinks that the, the, the Americans are there to do versus what other people in the administration are there to do versus what they're telling the planners and later the disconnect between what Casey's doing and what he thinks strategy is versus what the administration and the NSC think strategy is. These are not necessarily the same things. You get this same kind of a, a disconnect in other other administrations and in other wars. So, uh, the question, you know, the obvious question is how do you how do you prevent this from happening? You know, because it can lead to such disastrous, uh, disastrous results. And I don't know that I have an answer to that other than being sure that this is 
the message is being constantly pushed down. Uh, but it, it's a it's tough, tough to sort of things out. They're very complex. It is it is tough, and it kind of begins. Don Stoker, military historian, Clausewitz scholar, author of the book "Why America Loses Wars," <laughs> with a question of how do we even define war? Now, you take particular umbrage at some of the usages of the term war. Just this week in the Wall Street Journal, I was reading an editorial about the defense budget, and I think at least three times in the article, the writers referred to war or battle in a metaphorical fashion, uh, talking about budgetary battles, talking about congressmen taking the hill on spending. It was offensive, (laughs) actually. But not only was it offensive, it was also just making ambiguous, making more ambiguous our thinking about what is war and what is not war. Don Stoker, tell us how you define war and how you don't. I, I would define it the way, way Clausewitz defines it, and he's not coming up with this on out of thin air. Uh, first is the, the the politics of it, where you are seeking a political aim, either defensive or offensive. Uh, so, And also, it's against someone else, so it's uh, – and you're using violence as the instrument to do this. So you have violence politically directed with, as an instrument against another opponent upon whom you're either trying to prevent them from imposing their will on you or you're trying to impose your will on them. You know, so, so there's three there's three aspects of it, the instrumentality, the violence and the political, political driving with it. Uh, so um, – What's interesting is uh, exactly the things you say. We've made everything war, uh, where everything obviously is not war. Uh, so, and it's it's interesting to me to see how many times uh, I will see uh, statements in the press over the last five or six years. Oh, the, uh, America is at war with Russia. Well, no, we're not. Uh, and people say, oh, we're at war with Russia and Ukraine. No, we're not. <laughs> we're we're giving them money and equipment to to fight uh, to fight the Russians. Uh, and there, and then they say, "Oh, well, it's a proxy war." Well, no, Ukraine's not our proxy. Uh, Ukraine is fighting this war because they have their own aims. They're fighting it, uh, fighting it for their survival. It's an existential threat for them. We just happen to be giving them a lot of stuff. That doesn't make them a proxy because they're they're not doing this because we want them to. They're doing this because they think they have to. Uh, so, so you get into some real. This is why this goes back to my simple clouds. Clausewitz is a simple argument. Understand the political aim because this tells you the people's motivations. Uh, so uh, now you might have aims that would coincide with someone else's, but you know the Ukrainians are doing this because they think they have to, uh, not because we want them to. So. And we keep re- referring back to Clausewitz. And so let's get a little bit deeper on who he was, Don Stoker. He wasn't an editorial writer. Uh, he wasn't just a thinker. He wasn't really even a philosopher, really, Don. He was a theorist a military practitioner who happened to make some very astute observations and documentation about what he saw and thought of war. But tell us who he was. Well, he was a a Prussian soldier uh, who was actually better known in the 19th century as a historian than as a theorist uh, because he wrote an enormous amount. We know him mostly for having written the book on war. But the, the amount of other things that he wrote, histories of campaigns, his correspondence and uh, political analysis, even later in his life, sometimes is just enormous. I have an entire shelf of stuff uh, downstairs, <laughs> oh, excuse me, in my garage. That just sh- all of it is just lined up. All the things I accumulated when I was when I was writing the biography, you know. But 
Uh, he started out as into the Prussian army at age 11 as a cadet officer. Uh, he was probably 11. There's some argument over the birth date. Uh, it's probable that his uh, father lied, that the lie to make him 12 so he would seem older, uh, so vastly older. But uh, this was not that unusual uh, So it was in this period in the uh, in the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s. But he um, he comes of age during the, the wars of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And he fights in a number of these wars. Uh, he's in at least 36 battles. I think it was probably several times more that. But those are the ones that I could just put him on, in the dirt while it was going on, either as part of the staff or actually in the action itself. The, actually, this amount of combat experience in the French Revolution and Napoleonic period is not that unusual uh, for a lot of the men from a lot of different countries, uh, because they often will serve even in different armies uh, during this period as countries trade change sides. And it was also common if um, if your country was not at war, that you would resign your commission and go serve in some other person's army that was at war. You did this to get experience. Uh, then you might go back again. You, know, you have odd things that we seem odd. For example, one of the person that people that uh, – Clausewitz fought against during the 1812 campaign in Russia. Uh, he actually served under him in 1815. Uh, the guy was his boss, you know, so because wow. the countries had changed allegiances. So it was very, very strange things like that. But, you know, he serves in uh, 1806 war, uh, and he serves in Russia, 1812 war, heavily involved in 1813, 1814 campaigns, and in the 1815 campaigns as well. Uh, so an enormous amount uh, of military experience. I mean, he was he was a soldier for 40 years, you know, from the age 11 until he dies at age 50 uh, in the great cholera epidemic. And so he experienced just about everything you could could imagine from being an infantry officer to being on a staff to uh, advising uh, emperors and kings uh, later on to teaching and everything in between. So, Don, he was the most perceptive. We can agree. He was the most perceptive student of Napoleonic warfare, perhaps the most influential military thinker the past couple hundred years. But what does he have to say in an age of hybrid warfare, in an age of limited war, in an age of the gray zone, in an age of great <laughs> power competition, Don? Well, he would say that the, this uh, whole gray zone hybrid war is a bit of nonsense because uh, uh, I know you asked me that to bait me. Which is good. I would bait me with it as well. I would, Go on. <laughs> because I wrote this uh, great big article for Naval War College Review with a, a colleague uh, about two years ago, uh, uh, why hybrid war and the gray zone are, are really bad examples of American strategic thinking. Uh, the hybrid war won one because it's really nothing new there. All war has always been a mixture of, of uh, uh, conventional and unconventional war. So there's nothing nothing new there to even say. There's make, just... just coming up with ideas. They don't even realize what they're writing about, the people that are writing about this. Uh, and the gray zone war stuff, uh, well, they don't know the difference between war and peace. Uh, and they could view subversion and political action uh, for war because they don't understand that there's a difference between that, what war is. And so this has all led to some uh, very bad thinking and confusion of tactical with strategic. And of course, this is part of American, American doctrine you know, the uh, American strategic documents for the last 10 years, you'll see this stuff, you know, in it. So it's very interesting uh, to be teaching some of this stuff and say, well, well, here's the problem with what we're teaching our people to think it's wrong. And here are the 25 reasons why it's wrong. 
but then you go on <laughs> so <laughs> go to the next thing. Yeah, so uh, Kolasovitz would have no, no problem with the idea of limited war as long as you make the distinction between uh, the political aims you're, you're saying, because where we develop our whole construct for this is from him. Uh, he didn't use the terms the way we used them, but he said wars, there are two types of war. Uh, and this is why the political aim is matters, because that determines the war. You're either fighting a war to overthrow the enemy regime or you're fighting the war for something less than this. That's it. Uh, all wars will fall under those two categories. Now, here is why using the political aim as your basis for analysis matters so much, because it's a subjective basis. Most people, when they use the term limited war, uh, they're talking about the means, that there's a constraint on the means, and you're not trying to use uh, enough means to get the job done. So in this ends up, again, one of the difficulties, I really don't even like the term limited war, and I, I'd like to use the term uh, war for limited aims, because I think it's clearer. Uh, but as one of the referees on the, my book pointed out, he's, <laughs> I found out who later, what later it was, and she was telling me, this is great. But you're not going to change the way people use these terms, even though you're right. You know, <laughs> so, like, yeah, being right is not worth much sometimes, you know, so because I'm thinking, yeah, you're absolutely she's, she's absolutely correct on her on her analysis of it. You're right, but it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> well, Don, we'll, we'll we'll give you we'll give you one point, though, and say you've changed the way we'll use them. So we'll say a war for limited aims. The wars in Iraq. Let's go to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Which war? Let's Which start ones? with let's, <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, let's start post two thousand one. Uh, let's start with Iraq. Can you give us an Klausowitz's ends, ways, means analysis on the war in Iraq? For for who? For the Americans or for the Iraqis? Or both? The, I, so. That's a great point. Great question for yourself, Don. First, the Americans <laughs> and then the Iraqis. Okay, for the Americans, two primary political aims are. Changing the regime and installing a democracy. Uh, this is going to be strategy basically boiled down to using overwhelming military force. I mean, that, that's the best way to describe it. Uh, a multi-pronged offensive, uh, isolation of, of the country through sanctions, uh, blockade. Uh, so you got all these things rolled together. The means, and we just use uh, sufficient military means to get the job done. Uh, so to do it very, very quickly. Uh, speed also, I guess you could say, is part of the strategy. For the uh, Iraqis, they have uh, a limited aim, uh, survival of the regime. Uh, some would say that uh, Saddam, his personal survival is more important than anything else. Uh, the uh, strategy, they basically had, uh, best way to describe it is a, a layered ring defense uh, supported by irregular forces uh, and uh, the means, uh, a variety of conventional and unconventional means and uh, efforts to subvert uh, the uh, American uh, coalition building by, depending on who you believe on this, by bribing officials overseas and using various elements of propaganda uh, overseas as well and various information ops. So there's a friend, I have a friend who's working on some stuff on that. It's going to be interesting when he finishes it because he's got some of the Iraqi documents. He knows Arabic and stuff, so it'll be curious to see what he comes up with. Yeah, as, yeah, as would as would we. On that so that's one would be a, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And so you yeah. set the stage there on both sides, American yeah. and Iraqi. And as I think back about our side, I think whenever there was risk, we did a pretty good job of mitigating some of it, at least, yeah. by increasing yeah. the means. Uh, that seemed to be a consistent theme. Where did I, we I don't, go ahead? 
I would disagree with that um, because Rumsfeld tried to restrict the means as much as possible. And you also get a very odd ends, ends means dichotomy here uh, because you have Rumsfeld planning uh, to overthrow the regime. And he actually gives the planners for their political aim uh, the overthrow of the regime. Okay, that requires a certain amount of means to do that and a certain strategy for doing so. Uh, and I've talked to the planners about that. You know, I had one of them read my chapter on Iraq for my new book, and I won't tell you what he said because it's not printable in the family. <laughs> he said it made him feel the way he felt at the time, but he didn't use words like that. <laughs> His words are more colorful. Uh, but then you've got at the same time, you've got uh, the administration saying the political aim, another political aim is to establish a democratic Iraq. Okay. The guys doing the military planning are not told this. Their job is to plan for regime change, uh, to overthrow the regime. Their job has their job given to them was not to plan for the insulation of a democracy when this is the other aim that the administration wants. That requires, yes, it's some of the same means, but it requires different means and requires a different approach, you know, as well. And so going back to the Vietnam disconnect that we described earlier, you have a similar thing here where you have this disconnect between different wings of the administration and you have the, the poor guys doing the planning, planning for one thing. And uh, then the uh, some of the political leaders in the administration saying, well, here is what we're doing. But the planning for that is not necessarily where it should be. And do we ever allocate sufficient means for it? And here you go back to one of the big debates. Uh, I would say no until uh, very until things change. Eventually we did. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you recall before the war, you had this very famous debate between uh, – well, debate is not quite the word. This argument in uh, Congress where Shinseki is testifying before Congress and the Secretary of the Army, whose, whose name escapes me at the moment, and they're arguing, look, you know, for us to uh, uh, to um, keep this place nailed down and secure the peace afterward – Iraq, I mean – uh, it's going to require, to, in Shinseki's words, several hundred thousand troops, which, of course, caused a storm uh, in his relations to the administration and his job changes shortly after that. Uh, but um, he's basing this. He's just not just throwing out or he's just saying not just saying crazy things. He's basing this from he based it from looking at the experience we had in the Balkans in the 90s and the experience of looking at other conflicts. You know, he was. He was seriously trying to do his job. Yes, sir. Here are the problems we're going to have. Here's what it's going to cost you. It's going to be a lot more expensive than what you think and a lot harder than what people might say. That's his job you know, to tell people that. So you've got to give we got to give Shinseki credit for that. Of course, then Wolfowitz come in and says, no, how could it possibly take more troops to hold down a country uh, than to break it? Well, and Rumsfeld's, Rumsfeld's argument as well. But the, the weirdest part of that is they both end up being right. The American was so American military was so capable. Breaking the country didn't require nearly as much force as what people thought and crack, cracking the regime and having it come apart because we I don't even think we understood the, just the vast, amazing capabilities that we had. But Shinseki was certainly right. Yeah, well, you want to hold this thing down and keep from coming apart. It's going to cost you a lot more. So it's this very odd thing. But this is why you're trying to do two different things here. You're trying to install a democracy, but also you're trying to break the country, uh, overthrow the regime. And you can do both. Uh, but it took us a long time to ever build up the means with it. What's interesting is 
uh, I, I do not remember the numbers off the top of my head. There was someone who has, has written about this where they had projected the numbers that we would have to have to stabilize a rock. And essentially the troops we had from the surge plus uh, what little co- the coalition troops we had plus the Iraqi forces we had by that time been able to put in the field were very close to the exact numbers that uh, this person had had projected, you know, as far as what it would cost. It wasn't exact, but it was, it was, it was close enough to where it made me think, this is interesting. I need to, I need to read this again. You know, so, uh, so it's a, I know it's like, it's very complex. None of this is simple. None of this, None this is, is simple. simple. None of this and is it's, simple. It's much easier to look at it now uh, and to come up with these and you know, to say the things than looking at it then. Uh, is Go ahead, John. Oh, no, I was just, uh, Don, this is John Sorensen. Um, so I don't know if this is a, a a cause or a symptom, but the the AUMFs that authorized the actions in Iraq and prior to that, just weeks after the 9-11 attack, uh, were the stated aims in those were simply to defend U.S. national security. There, there, there was no rebuilding aim stated there. And, and not coincidentally, they're not declaring it a war. They're intentionally for – essentially for political reasons, avoiding calling it a war. And, it, and it's this kind of mutual agreement between Congress and the and the presidency, you know, Article 1 and Article 2, not taking responsibility for calling it a war. Uh, is that driven by the lack of clear aims or is it a convenient political tool not to acknowledge the total cost of breaking a country and what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, I don't know that I have a complete answer for that uh, because it strikes me as odd. I mean, one of the things after after 9-11, uh, Senator Byrd uh, apparently came to Bush and said, hey, do you want a declaration of war in Afghanistan? And he told him no. Uh, Bush told him no. And I'm sure he had reasons for doing it. I don't remember what they were off the top of my head now. But I thought that is, is very unusual that he he turned that down. Uh, and well, and- well, I mean, that that was I mean, we've heard Dick Cheney speak about this in senses. I mean, that was part of the 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 Cheney-esque understanding of the <laughs> expansive powers of the executive and that they did not want to essentially uh, relinquish uh, the sovereignty of the administration to Congress to be able to declare uh, it's constitutionally dictated, you know, both right and responsibility to, to declare something a war or not. They they had more latitude without calling it a war. You know, yeah. the first AMF is, is so sweeping. You know, it's used by what four administrations? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I. I yeah, maybe you're right in that. I don't understand exactly all the motivation motivations in that particular instance. You might know more about it than I do, but uh, it's certainly you can certainly judge it. Uh, it's just happened since Korea, where we just refused to declare war, and it's certainly a, a good argument to be made. This is an abdication of responsibility on both the presidents and the Congress at times. I mean, uh, you can. I think sometimes presidents would be better off to have a declaration of war because this actually then ties Congress to it. But you could also, you know, like you said, you know, you make the Cheney argument, well, maybe it ties your hands in ways you don't want them tied. But if you have Congress actually commit to it, it's their responsibility and not just yours. Uh, so if the president's acting just on a, a UMF or something, but then it's his responsibility. 
well, Congress was certainly not shy over the years in yeah, funding, funding a, and uh, funding a, a, yeah. a wider and wider interpretation. Um, but I mean, it gives yeah, them yeah. an out, though. They're not responsible right. for it. They fund it. But then, hey, if something goes wrong, right. it's all on the president, not on Congress. Right. And, and, and again, just thinking about our modern wars, uh, specifically the, the, the forever wars of post 9-11. But, but as you said, going back to Korea, Korea was never really a war. It was a police action and it never really ended. It's only an armistice. So it, we don't live in a kind of great powers world where, you know, opposing generals are going to meet on a battlefield and hand over a saber. And there is a clear demarcation of war, not war. Uh, is that, is it a symptom or a cause that, that we, that war is a process, not an event, um, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have a clear conclusion. So is is any war winnable? I mean, any war is winnable with sufficient force. The question is always, is the cost of after the war of using that much force going to destabilize your, your original aim of winning the war? Well, say so the cost is always an issue. Is it worth it? Ends up always being a fair question. But you know, I would disagree. There's not any ends. I mean, and like, and not any endings. I mean, sometimes an armistice is the best ending you're going to get. You might technically, you know, be you know, maybe in some legal sense at war, but we're not fighting the North Koreans. We're not fighting the Chinese. You know, so armistice ended up being peace. We never got an official agreement. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, there's a good study that uh, I cannot remember Quincy. I can't remember the study, but. Uh, most wars don't actually end up ending, certainly in the last 70 years or so, with an official agreement, official treaty. Now we're at peace, all these things. And, and we in the past have just simply declared wars over. But stopping the violence ends up being you know, one of the key elements of it. And so we certainly got that with the armistice after Korea. Uh, and we certainly can get that. You, you get that in Vietnam the hard way. Uh, so where the, the violence stops you know, between us and that. So we got peace there. Uh, but not the piece we wanted. We're so. certainly Don Stoker, military historian. We're <laughs> certainly end uh, more messily and less crisply than we anticipate at the outset. That seems to be a theme, and yet they can still end, can they not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the I think we have this illusion that they're all that maybe they're supposed to end clearly and cleanly, but they're always messy when they end, and a lot of times. Well, just think about the ending of the Second World War. We like to think about this as the ideal war and stuff like that, but the the ending was incredibly messy afterward. And there's a lot of still a lot of violence and stuff going on after when it's technically over. Uh, so, and just the the carnage that we had to rebuild from afterward. I mean, how messy? It's about as messy as it could possibly be. Uh, pretty horrendous. And so we talked about Iraq and. Let's look forward for a second. We know that war has a future. Uh, there's no danger of universal and perpetual peace breaking out. <laughs> peace is going to break out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can wish. We wish it were, would, would break out. The end of history is that we will all get along. We've uh, Yeah. We, history <laughs> ended and then it restarted again recently. But what would you like to see change about the way we think and talk about war coming out of Iraq coming out of Afghanistan, acknowledging that both of those cost more than, than most of us anticipated. What would you like to see different? Well, one, I'd like us to not be so eager to get involved in things for one thing. Um, 
because it's never going to go the way you think it will. Historically, that's just not the case. It's just things neither, neither never seem to work out as clearly and cleanly uh, as people expect. Uh, it always costs more. It's always almost always costs more. Almost always is bloodier. And if it isn't, you just you're gotten you've gotten lucky, and, and God has smiled on you. Uh, if it's not worse than you think, uh, so really just thinking very very clearly about what we want and realize how bad it's going to be, and it's going to be a lot more expensive, and and take a, odds are to be a lot more expensive and take a lot longer than we think it will be. Um, and then if we actually do decide. That it's, either we're forced into war or we decide it's necessary to go to war, then be just ruthlessly serious about it. And and ruthless may be the wrong word, but be, be very serious about what we're doing and actually make the effort to fund it, supply it, and keep enough, put enough people into it to where we can actually end it and not be willing to accept it going on and on and on forever. Sometimes wars have to be that way, and sometimes they will be long, regardless of what you do. But not just to get accepted to where it goes on and on. And I think about you know General Grant. Uh, one thing I think is very important to learn from him. You know, uh, he's criticized very often for what he was doing at the, in 1864 and 1865, and how bloody the wilderness and Cold Harbor and all these other places were. And they were. And Grant was the first one to accept this. But his argument was: "Is just look, uh, the only way I'm going to end this thing is by hard fighting." Uh, and that's going to be bloody, but I've got a lot more men dying of disease and all these other effects than I have from combat over the course of this war. And the longer this war goes on, the, the longer the dying will go on, the sooner it ends, the sooner the dying stops. And that was like one of his great motivations in doing what he's wanting to do. He wants to bring it to an end because he's seen this carnage, uh, for the three years before he gets to command in Virginia and it goes on for another year. There's a lot of things that end the war, but he, he didn't have Grant had no illusions uh, about war was about how bloody and brutal and, and, and nasty it was no illusions at all. And we shouldn't have them either. The more decisive an end of war, perhaps the more enduring the peace. There's a quote from war and peace. I don't quite have it on my mind, but characters why are you going to war i don't know because i have to i'm going because the life i lead here is not to my taste we should have better reasons than that don stoker thank you for joining us yeah thank you gentlemen i appreciate it thanks so much and thanks to our listeners be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on itunes or wherever you listen it really helps others discover the program and let us know what you think about the podcast is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to you can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. We will be back next Thursday with one of the most popular episodes of Hot Wash this year. Until then, have a happy holiday or whatever you celebrate. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.